I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Niner. The nothing personal word of the day is Niner as in the nickname of Jeff Conine. I've told you the story on Nothing Personal that in all 18 years, there is one player who has become my closest friend, and his name is Jeff Conine. And about a couple weeks ago, you remember we told the story about the bus that Niner and I own together. And we thought we would talk more about that, but we have so much else. I wanted to bring Jeff Conine on the show. Welcome, Niner. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing well. So we're in the middle of quarantine. We actually, this may be, I was thinking about the longest we haven't seen each other since you retired in 2000. Was it eight? Yes, 2008. So this is the longest we've gone, these quarantine, because you're not allowed to leave your house. I'm not allowed to leave my house. And that's the end of it. Unless we go to Publix together, we're done. It's been unbelievable. It's unbelievable what's happening right now in this world. And uh, our new normal is never going to be the same, I don't think. But are we in the new normal? Because now in Florida, where you're in Florida and I'm in Florida, actually New York has become way safer than Florida right now. Yeah, <laughs> go figure, right? Maybe we should go to New York. Well, that, that means we've got to get on a plane or we can maybe take the bus. Who knows? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. All right, I want to go back now. I want to talk about how this friendship started because people don't know that I did not know you. So when I joined the Marlins in 2002, I knew of you because you were Mr. Marlin and you were a Baltimore Oriole and you had won the All-Star Game MVP and you were part of the lore and the history of the Marlins, but I didn't really know who you were. And as a National League president, I didn't follow the American League all that closely. So I saw you play from time to time on highlights, et cetera. But then the story of how we actually met and the first day when you joined the Marlins, I don't know that you've ever told it from your perspective. Can you take us through August 31st, 2003, where you were, what you were doing, and I'm going to chime in with some funny things from the management side about what was going on that day as well. Yeah, I was in Baltimore uh, toiling with a team that was kind of underachievers. We had some great names, uh, good talent, but we just didn't put anything together and had no winning seasons while I was there. I was with Cal Ripken. Um, not at that time. He had already retired, but uh, we, had, we had really good teams. Um, so anyway, the, you know, the August trade deadline's coming up, and obviously uh, when you're on a team that's going nowhere and you're having a pretty decent season, you're always kind of rumored in different things. Um, but it, nothing had really been come across as a, possible, a, you know, a, a real possibility. So I was expecting absolutely nothing. So we had just played in uh, Seattle uh, against the Mariners. I was in a funk at that time. I was struggling badly, and I was thinking, that's probably why nobody wants me right now is because I, I was stinking so bad. But uh, I had an awful game, got in the bus, go to the airport, uh, day game, obviously, and we're going back to Baltimore. 
So, Can I just tell you something funny as a player that you have it backwards? Now that you've been in management, we worked together for so many years. We were rooting for you to stink because <laughs> we knew we wanted you. And what we had been told was that Peter Angelos, the owner, loved you, had like you were his son. It was a father-son relationship and that they wouldn't trade you. So we were hoping that you would have a bad series against the Mariners uh, or a bad game that Sunday when we realized we had a trade for someone when Mike Lowell broke his wrist. And I will never forget rooting for you to hit into a double play during that bat. And I don't know if you remember this game. Oh, your you, fault. Yeah. Oh, I did. You hit into the double play. Yeah. So we're trying to trade for you to replace Mike Lowell, and we have to set up a playoff roster. Then what happened? So uh, we get to the airport. Uh, as custom for teams, when they get to the airport, you park right next to the plane. There's uh, stairs that go up to the plane. Uh, TSA does their checks right there on the tarmac on a table before you go up. And I just was on the bus waiting until all the, the line dies down basically. So I'm in the back of the player's bus. There were two other players. I can't remember who, but they were in the front seats and in walks uh, Jim Beatty, our then GM. And when I saw him come on the player's bus, I knew something was going on. And when he walked past those first two players, that were in the front of the bus, I knew it was having to do with me. So he walks all the way back, takes a seat down across from me and says, Jeff, uh, we've been in conversations with the Florida Marlins. Uh, they are interested in getting you back in Florida. Um, but it's a trade that has contingencies on you because I had one more year left on my Baltimore deal. Uh, you breaking that one year up into two years and there's some negotiating to do. But I'm about to get on a plane go cross country. And back then the de deadline for trades were, was midnight and I was going to be in the air at midnight. Um, and this was not an easy negotiation just to say, Hey, yeah, okay, I'll do that. Let's do it. Uh, there is some work to be done. So. Well, uh, you remember your contract, you had one year left, as I recall, was it at $4 million? Four, seven, five, I think. For the 2004 season. And so when we were putting this trade together, the Mariners wanted two of our top prospects to get you and pitching prospects. And our view was, while we were desperate to have you, we weren't willing to give up those two prospects for just a year. If we're going to bring you back, we wanted to milk it and see if we could get you to be marketable. And we had heard that you were a good guy. So we wanted you not just for a year, but for a second year after that. But we weren't willing to allocate for at, uh, extend you at the same 4.75 for a second year. I assume if we had offered 4.75 for an additional year, you would have just said yes, and that would have been the end of it, right? Done. Done deal. So we didn't quite do that. So we're fighting with the Mariners. Jim Beatty, who used to be our GM, he was my first GM with the Expos. That's right. So, so it's a very small world. So Jim comes to the bus. Did he tell you what the issue was at that point? Um, no, I don't think so. I don't think I found out. Uh, what was going on until um, I made the call, the first call to probably you or Larry Beinfest. Um, are you sure you didn't call Michael Watkins first? He was in the air as well. I tried to call him first. He was flying from Oklahoma City to California. Couldn't get a hold of him. So I called my wife, Cindy, and I said, listen, this is what's going on. She was freaking out because she wanted me back home, obviously. Uh, it was very exciting to think that this was actually going to happen. But I said, uh, you got to call Michael. I've tried calling Michael. I can't get a hold of him. He's not answering. Call his wife. 
So she got back to me and said, he's in the air right now as well. He's going back to Orange County, California, and he should land in like an hour and a half. And I'm like, well, tell his wife what's going on, uh, get him on the phone, do whatever. And I'm about to take off. So thank God they had those little phones in the back of the headrest back then that you could swipe a credit card and uh, talk to a landline from the air or else this never would have gotten done. So it should be known that your wife, first of all, you were from, you lived in Florida. You had left the Marlins after the fire sale, Hyzinga's fire sale. I think you were traded after the 97 season. You didn't play 98 in Florida, right? No. So you were traded, but you kept your home in Florida, been involved from a charitable standpoint, the Conine Clubhouse, which is an amazing charity, which we've talked about on Nothing Personal, where you are associated with the Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital. Just so many great things. So we're trying to take advantage of this completely, that we want to get you back to Florida. But we were told that Cindy, who I didn't know at the time, your wife, was actually not in favor of the trade. So we thought that there was a marital issue and she didn't want you back in Florida (laughs) because we were told that she was holding up the deal because she would not accept anything other than same salary for the second year in order for you to come back. I don't know where you got that from, but that's... We got that from the Orioles. Well, they're just making stuff up then because that's not true. So was Cindy pressuring you to say yes to our deal? No, she was basically the intermediary. She was trying to process all the information and uh, act as like an operator, like the old-time operators you see where they had the phone calls, hold please, and she'd (laughs) click over here and talk to Michael and then hold please, and then she'd talk to me and then uh, hold please, I'll I'll get back to you. So uh, there was a lot of that going on, but uh, no, she was not anything part of holding up the deal. So you're sitting on the plane. Are you having drinks in the back of the plane in the player section while this is happening? Or are you uber focused on this trade situation? Or didn't you even care? No, of course I cared. And uh, it was just a strange situation. You're back of the plane and, uh, you know, your teammates that you've been playing with for going on four years, five years, they're watching this unfold as well. So they're all around me like, what's going on? What's going on? Is this actually going to happen? I'm like, I don't know. Uh, we're negotiating and we're, we're seeing what, uh, can be done for that last second year and blah, blah, blah. So it was, uh, it was the craziest plane ride I've ever had. And you had no idea that on our side, we're speaking to Jim Beatty. He's still holding out Peter Angelos as the person who was also not interested in trading you. And you told me something years later after we'd gotten close. And if you're willing to share, um, what was your relationship with Peter Angelos? I was just going to interject that, that uh, at that point, um, especially after you told me that I was one of his favorite players and, you know, whatever, uh, I had never met the man face-to-face. <laughs> Can you imagine? Never met the man. And the only reason I did is because I actually went back to the uh, Orioles in 2006 after you guys didn't want me anymore, so you kicked me aside and I had to sign back with them. But anyway, uh, I go back to 2006 opening day, we're having dinner at Fleming Steakhouse there on the uh, Inner Harbor. And I glance over and I happen to notice that Peter Angelos is at the table like one away. I'm like, oh my God, that's Peter Angelos. So he gets up from having his dinner. He walks over and he just happens to look down and notices that I'm sitting there. And I looked up, he puts his hand on my shoulder. He goes, hey, Jeff, nice to have you back. And walked out. That's the only conversation I've ever had with Peter Angelos. It's really in my whole career with the Mar- or with the Orioles, and uh, 
he picked up the check, which was nice, but uh, that was my only contact I ever had with him. Oh, my God. Jim Beatty is so full of crap. It's hard to even imagine. So you come to the Marlins. We win the World Series. Yada, yada. We win the World <laughs> Series. You and I become one of my favorite pictures is us celebrating after the wild card that, that uh, we just got to know each other. You were an unbelievable player. You actually started off on a slump, if you may remember, in 03, but you carried us. We won the World Series. Fast forward, you leave because we got the team after 05 when we sucked. You promised me we'd make the playoffs in 05, and you could not get your teammates to win games. We had a chance with Burnett in 05 against Clemens in Houston. Where were you, Conine? Hey, man, I tried. I was trying, and we had a great team. We really did. I thought that uh, both those teams, 04 and 05, had a good shot at making the playoffs. And like you said, you know, you can have a bunch of great names together. Or like I said earlier with the Orioles, you got a bunch of great names together. But if you don't get those games done, like we did in 2003, if you don't get those games done uh, when it comes crunch time, because, you know, we waltz into um, Houston against the Astros, who was, we're battling with, and uh, we had a chance to take kind of hold of our own situation right there and, and make the playoffs. And we did it. We lost. It was horrible. That's one of my worst years. So after you retired and uh, you came to work with me and the two of us worked together for years, day in, day out, developed this amazing friendship. Cut to, I tell you that Jeffrey wants to sell the team. So I'm starting the process of selling the team. You and I would spend time before games and during games and after games, all, almost every game, home, on the road, et cetera. What is your version of how you are currently a 50% owner of the great Marlins bus? Do you remember the moment that transaction happened? I do. I do very well. Uh, as you know, we were training for the 777. So our good friend, uh, PJ Lowell and I were walk, uh, going for a training run or a training walk at that point for me because my hip was shredded. But uh, anyway, uh, I just brought up the the possibility of him and I taking our boys up to Halloween Horror Nights, which is an annual event down here at uh, Universal Studios. Uh, they do it up. The whole park opens up every single night with scare zones. And it's just, a, it's a really cool event to go to. And I've taken uh, my daughter up there earlier. And so I want to take maybe our, my youngest up with his two boys who are good friends. And I said, Hey, what do you think? He's like, yeah, let's, let's try that. So, um, and at some point he mentioned, he's like, oh man, you know, too bad, you know, we can't utilize the bus and just take the bus up there. I'm like, oh man, that'd be cool. Didn't really think much of it uh, at all. So we are uh, in PJ's office the next day and it was Sunday, Sunday day game. The transaction is going through on Monday. This team is going to be sold. You know, we're kind of just hanging out together knowing that uh, it's all going to come to an end and, and we're not going to be um, cohorts anymore. We're not going to work together anymore, which was a pretty sad day. But uh, you come walking into PJ's office and I said, Hey, you know, PJ and I were talking about maybe um, going up to Halloween Horror Nights. Would you and your son, Caleb, like to come up with us? And then, uh, you know, I don't know if it was PJ or myself said, Yeah, too bad. You know, you'd love to take the bus. And your eyes lit up and you're like, Oh my God, the bus the bus. I'm like, what? And he goes, I'm going to buy the bus. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, right now, I, hold on. And then you called your lawyer right then, right that second. And you asked him, Hey, Wayne, what's the deal with the bus? And he's like, what? He's, you're 
talking about a $1.2 billion transaction is going to go through tomorrow. And you're talking to me about the bus on a Sunday. He's like, just find out what the hell is going on with the bus. And sure enough, he calls you right back and he said, hey, it's Jeffrey's bus right now. And I think he said at whatever noon deadline was on Monday that the bus became part of uh, property of the Marlins. So at that point, that wasn't involved in the transaction. So as you do, you took uh, hold of the reins and said, all right, what are they going to sell it for? Are they going to sell the bus? Hey, what, what, what can we get for it? Da, da, da. And I remember you throw, out, you throw out 50 grand to buy the bus. And PJ is behind on the desk just throwing up 10 fingers like this. <laughs> and, and you that said, is uh, how we came to a price of 10 grand for the bus because PJ put up 10 fingers. If he had had like, if he were Alfonseca, it would have been like a 12 grand bus. It would have been a 12 grand bus or Jim Carrey in uh, uh, the movie with uh, Morgan Freeman. With uh, uh, Bruce uh, Almighty, Bruce it would Almighty. have been 14. Yeah, but anyway. <laughs> That's how you came up with it. And I had to go do the show. So I'm in coat and tie. I got to go up and do my show on Fox. And he goes, I'm going to go talk to Jeffrey. And by the time I left that office, I went up, did my show, came back. You had written a check, gotten the title, signed over, and you and I had owned the Marlins bus for $10,000. And it could have been an investment of 3000 each, but PJ Loyello did not want to join our company. So now you and I are the sole owners of WGTFB LLC. We got the F and Bob. You, you have taken charge, redone it, and people rent it. They take it on weekends. And it is the famous Marlins bus that is now owned, operated by the Conine Samson Collection. <laughs> it's so true. We're partners. It's really nice. I mean, we had to, had to do some work to get rid of Billy the Marlin off the back of the bus, but uh, we got it done. So we're telling people all about the good part about our relationship. I, I need to talk a little about the competitive part because I think that people may be getting the wrong impression and thinking that it's all roses between the two of us and that we're best friends and that everything's always joyous. The truth of the matter is that we are, yet both of us have one tremendous thing in common. We are the most competitive people I've ever met. I don't want to lose anything ever, period. And you are the same. And you've got a temper, might I add. No. What are you talking yes. about? Yes. So back in 2006, I, uh, I'm doing the Ironman in Hawaii. When I was doing the Ironman in Hawaii, I'm just curious, Niner, um, was that a goal of yours to do the Hawaii Ironman? No, not really. I mean, I've always been a big fan of the event. And, you know, I watched uh, the show they produced every year and, and just watched with admiration, but I'd never really. So to... why'd you do it, Jeff? Um, because, you know, I saw that show and I was very inspired by it. And uh, I saw the nun on there, you know, the 77-year-old nun that did it. I'm like, if she can do it, I can do it. I, that's you are so full of it. Why'd you do it, Niner? Come on. Why'd you do it? Because you did it. And what was the one goal you had hard stop? Um, just to finish. That's my only goal. Oh, my God. You're the biggest liar <laughs> ever. No, my biggest goal was to beat whatever time yours was. And if Can I wasn't, imagine? If, I, if I was about to go right across that finish line and it was going to be slower than yours, I was going to come up with some, I tore an ACL or my hamstring ripped from the bone or something like that. But you know me, it wasn't going to happen. 
So you spent a year of your life training to do, by the way, the coolest race ever that is now the one tattoo that you have after two world championships, an all-star game MVP, three kids, all the accomplishments that you have. The one tattoo you have is Iron Man. And the sole reason was to make sure you beat my time. That was one of the reasons, not the sole reason. I really want to become an Iron Man. That was after starting all that journey and that training, which was miserable. Um, yes, that was part of the whole picture. So you beat me and you are a professional athlete, but you got me. You got me by, you then sent me a signed jersey, by the way, where you, you signed your name on your own jersey and you wrote down the amount of time you beat me by. I want to say it was like 56 minutes or it was a significant amount of time. I mean, you absolutely crushed me. There's no doubt about it. But I wasn't done because later, a couple of years later, we did our next activity and I want to know if you are willing to recall it the way I did. We went down to Homestead and we drove NASCARs together. And how did that go for you, Niner? Oh, that was one of the coolest experiences of my life. I mean, get behind a wheel of a NASCAR and get to ride it on an uh, actual NASCAR track. It was super cool. So you called me. The way it worked is you called me one day and said, hey, because I love driving fast. You love driving fast. We drive fast. You said, you know, we can go to Homestead and it's only an hour and a half away. By the way, how did we get there? Did we take the bus or did we drive? I can't remember. We may have driven or we may have taken we, the bus. No, I think, we, I think we drove. Did we drive? Yeah. And you, you go and you're alone in the NASCAR. So you go to Homestead, you pay an amount of money, you go to a quick class, they put you in a jumpsuit, they put you in a helmet, you have to know how to drive manual stick shift. And you are, it's not like you're in the passenger seat. It is you in the driver's seat alone driving a real NASCAR. Am I exaggerating this experience? No, it's insane. There was an instructor, instructor ahead of you kind of pacing you around the track and they go by your level of confidence. So if you're right on their tail, they know that you're feeling good about it and they go a little faster every time around. So uh, yeah, it was the most incredible, literally you're in the NASCAR and you're driving a NASCAR around a track and it was insane. Which by the way, is so much harder than it looks on TV. We did three races of eight minutes each. And after the 24th minute, I was done. I mean, eight I couldn't laps, have yeah. driven another lap. Three, three rounds of eight laps. Yeah. And, uh, these oh, things eight don't laps have, or eight minutes, eight laps, eight laps. Got yeah. it. And these things don't have power steering and power brakes. It is the most rudimentary looking machine that you've, it's basically a giant engine with, uh, uh, old steering wheel and an old stick shift and two massive pedals that you smash. And that's it. That's the only thing the car goes. But, you know, there's 740 horsepower, and it's loud, and it's hot, and you get a whole new appreciation for what these guys do. Because think about it. We are alone on the track with one car ahead of us. Think about being flanked by 30 other cars back, forward, and on the sides. It was a whole other level of respect for NASCAR. And so who won? Well, I mean, the driver, the guy was ahead of me, so you couldn't really beat him, you know, but... Um, if you if this is video, we may release this as video, Niner, because it's too good to see your face because you're so full of it. So are you saying that it was not a competition amongst the racers who were there? What, what racers? I mean, I can't even just, believe this. It was just me in a car. There was nobody else on the track. 
All right, folks, I'm telling you the story because that's... Yeah, whatever, whatever. Yeah, you whatever. You, you lost. Like point zero zero one miles per hour, and I'll tell you why, and you know why. Why? Because I weigh 100 pounds more than you do, and it bogged down the car. That's all there is to it. So I beat you Your because I'm, I'm smaller. Handicap. Yeah. That's the story you're going to go with after all these years. We should have put 100-pound weights of weights in that car if that was actually what it was going to come down to, but... Um, what bothers me is and that my guy was un- holding me back too. So it wasn't all my fault. Your unwillingness to lose anything <laughs> makes me laugh because I went faster than you. There was standings. It was an absolute competition. They were time trials and it was a race. And when my name came out above yours and we've got witnesses, you were despondent. I was waiting for you to say that word. I was it's your favorite word and it's very applicable to this situation. That's the only thing I've ever beaten you at, by the way. We play ping pong. He beats me every time. He's unbelievable. By the way, you're a, people think that you are just a baseball player. The funny part is, are you a better racquetball player than a baseball player? Oh, much better racquetball player than a baseball player. Isn't that there's interesting? A, I always tell people, if there's any money in racquetball, I never would have been here. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So, but you were a pitcher when you started. So how did you know there was going to be money for you in MLB as a hitter? I had no clue. I was going to play pro racquetball as I was exiting college. And then this opportunity came up. I'm like, yeah, you know, I'll give this a shot. And I told myself going in, I said, uh, I hadn't, I had no at-bats in college, but they drafted, Kansas City Royals drafted me as a position player. So I said, you know what? What round? 58th round. And what was your signing bonus? Uh, actually it's pretty high for 50th round. I think I got 7,500 bucks. That is actually very high. I know back then in 1987 is when I got drafted. Um, they gave me $7,500 and why? Uh, um, I don't know why actually. I think my, the, uh, scout that drafted me was, had a great track record. He drafted Brett Saberhagen. He did uh draft a Cecil Fielder. He had uh big time guys that I think they were, uh, very high on him at the time. And uh, it was going to be a difficult for me to sign because on 58th round, I'm just throwing it out there. I'm not really a, a player, but he fought for me. And he said, listen, we need this guy in our organization. You better sweeten it up a little bit, do whatever you can, whatever you got left, give it to him. And they did. That was their offer. It wasn't like I had to negotiate that. They said, we're going to give you 7,500 bucks and send you an instructional league. I'm like, okay. Would you have signed for less? Oh yeah. Yeah. I definitely would have signed for less. So you join and they didn't want you to, cause you were a pitcher at, in college. 
No, I got one at bat in college. I pitched only and I was mediocre at best. I think I was ended up my career there at four and two uh, with two saves and a 6.06 ERA. So in today's world, you never would have been drafted, by the way. Not even given a, a thought. And, and there's no one at 40 rounds. I mean, that year they picked, I think Cleveland went to the round 70 that year. They could pick as many rounds as they wanted to. So for people who don't know the way baseball used to work, it was like a poker game where uh, it, it only ends when everybody passes. So what happens in the draft is if any team wants to take a player, then they can, and then it goes to the next round, and then you go team by team, pass, pass, pass. Cleveland, I'll take John Doe. Okay, next round. So it just keeps going. It, obviously, the rules changed. It went to 40 rounds, and now people know this year it went five rounds as part of a negotiated settlement with the players in March where the players absolutely sold the amateurs down the river, by the way. Your union, which you're not a part of anymore, are you part of the union, actually? Sure. I mean, I get a pension from them. I, I'm not an active member, but I think I'm still considered part of it because, I don't know. Do you pay dues? No. Do you so get a check from them every year? No. So you don't get licensing either? No. So you're just getting pension. So I'm not sure you're part of the union, but you're definitely still getting benefits. You're fully vested in MLB's pension, aren't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's not a bad gig if you can get it. Real, fully vested at 10 years, so. So you went from being a 58th round, 7,500 pick, where you had had one at-bat, and you ended up being... Was it a 19 season? How long were you in MLB? 17. 17 year MLB or two World Series championships. What was the highlight, would you say? The, the moment in your career, if I had to ask you, what was the number one highlight of your career? Uh, number one highlight? I mean, I've been asked that many times before, and I almost have four or five that are tied for first. You know, it's. Uh, each of those last outs recorded in both the World Series that I was able to be part of are there's nothing, nothing like that. You know, we put on a uniform as a player to reach that pinnacle and to win a World Series. And to be able to do that twice, that's a tough um, number one not to have. Um, another number one was the game-ending play uh, against the Giants in the NLDS in 2003. That's when you uh, threw out JT Snow at the plate. Another, One of the great plays in Marlins history to end a series. What an exciting thing when you threw out JT Snow was trying to score from second on what would have been a blown save by Ugeth Urbina at the time of that game. You were playing in, you took it off the bounce, and you threw a one-bouncer perfect to Pudge. And JT Snow, you and I actually have talked about this since, but it's worth noting that little things that happen in the world of playoffs where you have to set a playoff roster. And that's what we were doing when we traded for you. We were setting a playoff roster. And then each round, you have to set the 25 guys you're going to have in your team. We knew the San Francisco Giants made such a big mistake by having uh, – they did not have any sort of pinch runners. They kept an extra pitcher, which in a five-game series, which was the first round at that time, there really is no need for that extra bullpen arm. And so they had nobody who they could use as a pinch runner. Felipe Alou was the manager. He had no one to use. So JT Snow was a step slower than some other guys, though you would have had anybody but Juan Pierre on that play because it was such a perfect throw of yours. But the series ended on that. That's a pretty big highlight, Niner. Yeah, that was, that was huge. I think it's the only, if I'm not 
mistaken, it's the only time a playoff series has ended at a play at the plate. That is, it, it certainly was in 03, and I don't right. think it's happened in the 17 years since then. Uh, and there, there's been winning runs that have scored at the plate, but an out recorded at, at a blown save, basically. Yeah. I was happy. That was big. And we still needed so many things to go right. And is it possible that in that series was both the highlight and the low light of your career? Um, yeah, absolutely. I saw it replayed and I had to watch it with my son, Griffin, who's uh, a member of uh, the Blue Jays organization now. And I said, watch this next at bat. This is probably the, the crappiest I've ever felt on a baseball field. And we're in the playoffs. I mean, it's, it's playoff baseball. I hit a lazy fly ball to, to right field. I'm not quite sure if it's going to be fair or foul, but um, I jogged down first baseline and Jose Cruz Jr., gold glove, right fielder for the San Francisco Giants, absolutely just dropped the ball. I mean, hit right in the glove. It was the easiest catch he could have made all year long, dropped the ball right in the middle of his glove, and it clanked, and I'm standing with my thumb up my butt at first base. And I should have been standing on second. Um, do a little more detail because the situation may have made that play even worse than you're describing. Yeah, it was, uh, was that, it was tie game. Um, was it tie game, extra innings? Was it extra innings? It was extra innings. Yeah, tie game. And, and I was, I. Are you sure it was a tie game? Because we were down a run. We were down a run. And it might've been, uh. Nobody out either. I think I might have been. You were leading off. Yeah. So are you purposely forgetting this? You really don't remember. It's, it's foggy to me. It's as angry as I've ever been watching a play in 18 years, but I felt better knowing that you were going to be more angry with yourself. There's some players who just don't give a crap, right? Oh, that I would was, make that play. I wanted, but... to, I wanted to absolutely dig a hole at first base and disappear. And do you remember what happened two pitches later or three pitches later? Uh, well, we got a walk, so that moved me over to second base, which mm-hmm. I was like the happiest man on earth that I actually got to second with a walk. Without, <laughs> without recording it. I would have scored probably. And so I got a walk to move me over and then uh, ended up going, I think, bases loaded because another walk. And then I was forced out at home um, during that inning, but we ended up scoring. So That's exactly what happened. So it's funny how in one game – both those things can actually happen. So you've had a career where we've been through so much together. So you have three children. I want to talk for a minute about your son. You just mentioned him, but it's worth mentioning because you were not the prototypical ball player. We've talked about that 58th round draft pick. It's not as though you were going to have children who were automatically going to be big leaguers because it's just hard to be a big leaguer to begin with. So I knew Griffin back from 03, that's 17 years ago. He's your second oldest child, oldest son. He's now, what is, is he 22 now? 23? 22, yeah. 22. So I met him when he was five, basically. He was a kid. He didn't like baseball at all. I don't think he was aware that his dad was a big league baseball player. When you and I would travel together, he was more interested in skateboarding. I mean, he just, he didn't like baseball. And you and I would talk about it. It's not the end of the world. But then something clicked. What was your role in having him become such a great baseball player that he went to Duke and then got drafted? Um, I almost took it uh, maybe a little too far the other way is that I never wanted him to feel like he had to play baseball because of what I did. And like you said, he was 
I let him do whatever. I let him, you know, he played little league and, you know, t-ball or whatever, but he wasn't really that interested. He, he took a couple years off and just skateboarded and did some other things, played a little basketball. And I just wanted him to find his own way. So um, he did get back kind of interested in playing baseball. So after I retired, I couldn't stand, I couldn't bear to be around the coaching that I saw in these travel teams. And I said, you know what, I'm going to see if there's a possibility that I can take over coaching his team. Uh, just because I want to teach the kids the right way to play baseball and not have any pressure on them to win or get yelled at for missing a ball or, you know, it, it should be fun, especially at that age. And we're talking 11 years old. So I did get that opportunity to coach him. And I remember going to a tournament one time and, uh, you know, it's crazy. Travel baseball, especially down here in South Florida, is, is kind of crazy. Uh, I had a conversation. I said, listen, Griff, I said, I don't care if you never pick up a bat or a ball the rest of your life. Because he was still kind of lukewarm about, you know, dedicating himself and, and I think really you know, playing hard and, and going all in. And I said, I don't care if you ever never pick up another bat or ball your entire life. I don't care. Do what you want to do. Do what makes you happy. And he told me, he goes, no. He goes, I want to play baseball. I'm like, all right, I'm here, obviously. So I just kind of, you know, on the fringes, I would always uh, offer my, you know, fatherly advice, but I'm still dad. So it was taken sometimes well and sometimes not. Sometimes I'd have to tell my other coaches, I'm like, hey, tell Griffin to do this because he ain't listening to me. <laughs> and that's what happened. But he would always listen because he was very coachable. So, you know, fast forward to high school, freshman year, you know, he's kind of a gangly uh, player and made the varsity team late in the year, got called up as a freshman, made the varsity team as a sophomore and had just an okay year. But from the sophomore year, summer to going into junior year, something really happened to him. He clicked, you know, he started all of a sudden getting to the weight room and, and getting in charge of his body rather. Uh, and I always likened it to like when you see a, a a newborn and they just can't really get their legs, you know, and they're kind of uh, stumbling around. That's kind of what he was like with a bat. You know, the bat kind of controlled him instead of vice versa. Well, he grew, uh, put on a lot of weights or get in the weight room. And all of a sudden his junior year, everything clicked. And now he's a beast and had an amazing year was Broward County player of the year. And, um, and it was a late recruit for him. You know, it was very late. The school started getting interested in him at that time. And, you know, Duke came a calling. Wait, we drafted him. That's the right. Marlins drafted him right after high school, and you wouldn't let him sign with us. You That's wanted him right. to go to Duke. Yeah, 31st round, you guys uh, drafted him. And uh, he still beat me by, what, 27 rounds? Uh, anyway, he goes to Duke uh, University and has just uh, an amazing three years there, the best experience of his life. Um, you know, all ACC a couple times and, uh, ends up getting drafted in the second round by the Toronto Blue Jays. Is he better than you? He's way better than I, I was at that point in my life. Will he way be better. a better major leaguer than you were? That all depends. And I've, I tell him this, and I've always told him this, it's all about the mind from here on out. He goes, he's got every tool. He's got a cannon for an arm. He's got, you know, big league power. He's got the best, you know, he's been rated the best power prospect in the whole Blue, Blue Jays organization. Uh, from here on out, it's all about his mind and how he's going to be able to handle the rigors of a minor league season and, and the travels uh, that 
go along with that and the slumps that go along with that and how do you deal with all the adversity. If he can do that, he will be a much better bigger leader than I was. How much is his development being hurt by no minor league season this year? It's huge. It's huge. Uh, it's such a shame because this is the perfect time for him. He had a great season last year uh, in a ball, even though it was shortened uh, by suspension um, in 80 games, he did what most, what most guys do in a big or in a, in a full season. Um, he had 22 home runs in 80 games. So had a monster season. And this year would have been, I think, his march through uh, their minor leagues. And uh, I, I don't know if it would have been a call up possibly at the end of this year, but I, I would say at the end of next year would have been a, a definitely, definitely in the realm of possibility to get called up to the big leagues. How hard was the call when Griffin calls you to say he had been suspended? How hard was that for him to make? How hard was that for you to hear? Uh, it was incredibly hard for him to make. And, you know, you know your son. And I saw or I felt through the phone, I felt his pain. And for a dad, he was suspended for perform. It was not performance enhancing drugs. He tested positive for what? Uh, a Ritalin. Ritalin. Stimulant, yeah. A stimulant. It's, so it's a stimulant, and uh, which is something. Let me just take a two second side note and, and say that Jeff Conheim was around during the whole steroid era. And one thing that Niner and I have always talked about is that he did not do steroids. He would not do steroids. And by the way, he played with people who did do steroids, who got paid for doing steroids, like Brady Anderson. So he watched Brady Anderson do steroids, watched him at 50 home runs, watched him cash in, and then all of a sudden go back and made a decision that he was not going to be a part of that. Griffin did not do steroids, but was suspended for a stimulant. So now the call comes in and uh, what, what's going on in your mind? Um, feeling his pain and feeling the way he did, I knew this was the worst thing that could possibly have happened to him. He worked so hard at his craft, worked so hard at what he does that he was feeling way more pain than I ever would. And I was just concerned with him. You know, I didn't care about, oh, you know, it's Jeff Conine's son, blah, blah, blah. I didn't care about that at all. He admitted to his mistake. Uh, he knew the exact time it happened, he knew um, that it was a possibility that he could get tested and fail, and it happened. Um, and he learned from it. He learned from it. And now his level of dedication and um, work ethic is second to none. And, you know, he, he wants this badly. And so he's moved on from that and still is working like crazy here at the house um, I built a batting cage in the backyard during this uh, quarantine with a pitching machine and everything. We're out there pretty much every day. Uh, he's still working hard. And if the call does come that, you know, baseball does resume, I think he's going to be ahead of the game because of how hard he's worked. So there's a chance. Do you, does he, that, yeah, that, so does he talk to you about the expanded rosters and the possibility of him being part of a taxi squad? If it's true, they go to 60 people, which is rumored that they go to 60 man taxi, uh, taxi squads. Um, he had a call the other day with the Blue Jays and uh, one of the hitting coaches that uh, was with him last year just said, hey, you know, just keep it in the back of your mind and be ready. You know, he didn't say this is going to happen, didn't say this is a possibility, didn't say anything. And, you know, they, I think Griffin is obviously well-read with everything that's going on in baseball and knows it's slim that there isn't going to be a season, but he knows there's a slight possibility that he could be involved in it. It would be amazing. So the commitment is that Coca, we will be 
we have to be at Griffin's, his debut in Major League Baseball. Wherever it is, we will be doing, maybe we can do a nothing personal show from the road because it will be the first time that a child of a friend will be in the big leagues. It's hard to imagine that you're old enough to have a child in the big leagues. And I can just say that uh, it really is, uh, oh, you know, Coca just whispered in my ear, when he debuts in the big leagues, we could take the bus. I was just thinking the same thing. <laughs> that would be a road trip. That's a road trip. Niner, I appreciate your time. We've been through a lot, and uh, we didn't even get to talk about doing seven marathons in seven days and seven continents. There's so many. We didn't talk about the Ichiro Tokyo trip I wanted to talk to you about. We could do a whole other episode. It's been epic, all the things that we've been able to do together as uh, working together and then as, as best friends. And I love you, Niner. Thanks for coming on Nothing Personal. I love you too, man. Let's do it again sometime. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.